forgive the rough uh, rough sermon title. Sometimes these things come to mind, and I write them out, and I, later on I think I should have changed that title. But anyway, the idea is what it means to be a witness for Jesus. And uh, we've been talking about, we've been going through the book of Acts together, and um, we've covered uh, what brought about the great revival that caused the, the Christian church to really give rise in the first century. Uh, we talked about, um, yeah, the importance of uh, the prayer that the disciples uh, practiced one, to, with one another in community. Uh, we've covered the persecution that's taken place, and today um, we just wanted to talk about what led to um, the witness of the disciples. Uh, and before I go into that, I just want to look at a few times where God calls his people to do great things and how he interacts with them um, through history. And so I'm going to pick a couple examples from the Old Testament, and then I'm going to come to this great calling that God gave to his disciples. So if you have your Bibles, if you can turn to the book of Exodus with me, we're going to look at um, the story of Moses, where God calls Moses to do something incredible. And it's quite a famous story that we often look at, but I, I found there are really inspiring points about this uh, about this interaction between God and Moses. We're going to start in Exodus chapter three. Exodus chapter three. Now, there's this. Before I go into this uh, this um, this story, there's this account of a man named Andy Eddington, and he was once the president of Shriner College, and he loved drinking coffee, and so he would go to these cafes, and uh, he would order a cup of coffee, and he would basically uh, have sugar cubes and put them in his coffee, and uh, this one particular occasion, there was this waitress who was watching Andy Eddington um, make his coffee, and so he takes one sugar cube and he puts it in, and then he takes another sugar cube, number two, puts it in the coffee, stirs it again, takes sugar cube number three and four, and then finally he runs out of sugar cubes, and he calls to the waitress and he says, excuse me, um, I've run out of sugar cubes, can you please bring me some more? And in disbelief, she looks at him and she says, honey, you need to stir what you got. You need to stir what you got. And so um, the message behind this idea of witness is to stir what we've got. And there's this interaction where God comes to Moses uh, in the burning bush, and we're familiar with this story. And Moses has been in the wilderness for 40 years as a shepherd, and God now comes to Moses and says, Moses, I want you to basically free my people from uh, slavery and go to Pharaoh and Tell Pharaoh, let my people go. This is my calling for you. And Moses is quite afraid, and he kind of looks at this daunting task, and this is the account of his conversation with God. And if you look at uh, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 11, it says, uh, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve me on this mountain. And so God says, Moses, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. You go and you free my people. Now there are two major hurdles that Moses is worried about. The first hurdle is that Moses does not have a relationship with the leadership of Israel. And even though they're slaves, they still have elders. There's still a structure of hierarchy. And Moses is saying, what's going to convince them that me, a stranger who has been apart from them for over 40 years, would go back to them and say, hey, I'm the guy that ran away from Egypt. Now come follow me and I'm going to take you into a promised land. Like there's just no way that they're going to believe me. Now, the second problem on Moses' mind is, on top of the fact that 
the leadership of Israel is not going to trust me, there's a problem of Pharaoh. He is the most powerful uh, king in the then known world. How am I supposed to free so many people from this ruler? And so he has these concerns. And God's response to him is this. If you look at verses 16 and 17, it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing of milk and honey. Okay, so that's a, quite a mouthful. But God basically says, you go to them and say, I'm going to bring you out. Don't worry. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know if that would be so con- um, convincing for me. If God says, I will take care of it, just tell them to do it, and it'll happen. And I, in my mind, I think, oh man, I, I don't know if I could do that. And so God takes it one step further. And if you fast forward to chapter 4, and you read the first four, uh, few, first two verses, basically, God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, I know you're concerned about uh, whether or not Israel is going to respond to my call to them. So I'm going to ask you a question. What is in your hand? What's in your hand? And Moses looks at his hand and he says, a rod or a stick. And that's God's answer. He's like, okay, now go to Pharaoh. Now, think about this for a second. Let's say I myself, Roy Kim, uh, go to the most powerful leader in the in the known world right now. I'd probably think it might be someone like Barack Obama. And I go with my stick to Barack Obama and I say, hey, get out of the Middle East. Like, is Barack Obama going to listen to me? You know, I don't know if he is. <laughs> and so I don't know if I would, I think that I can understand what Moses is going through right now. Or maybe uh, to localize it to here in Australia, if I go to Tony Abbott and I say, hey, let the refugees go. Is he going to then open the gates of the detention camps and say, okay, please enter into society? Like, I just, you know, that's probably not going to happen. So you can understand um, the concerns that are going on in Moses' mind. Now, somebody tried to calculate. Uh, there's someone called the Postmaster General of the United States Army. And basically, it's this person's job to figure out um, basically – the, the basic logistics of the U.S. military. And so that person counts how many soldiers do we have, how much is it going to cost to feed and house these people during the duration of their service, and especially when they go overseas to go fight, um, what do they need to survive? And this person tried to calculate, I wonder how many people uh, were in, uh, how many slaves were in Egypt, how many of them were Israelites. And so he's kind of calculating, he's thinking, you know, um, to my calculations, there probably would have been around one to two million people um, that were slaves in, in Israel at that point in time. And so Moses has to gather this crowd of people and bring them into into Canaan. And basically, the quartermaster general of the United States Army starts calculating. He's thinking, you know, if you've got to feed um, two million people in the wilderness, um, how much would it take, how much food does it take to feed somebody just for one day, just one day? And so here's his calculations. He says, according, uh, so this is according to the quartermaster general, he calculated that Moses would have needed 1,500 tons of food each day to feed the Israelites. To bring that much food each day uh, to the camp of Israel, it would have taken two freight trains, each 1.6 kilometers long. And so you want to feed that many people? 
It's going to take a lot of food. Well, if you have food, well, you have to have firewood, right? Because you have to cook the food. Um, and there has to be a way to heat your meals. So besides that, um, you have to consider firewood. This would have taken 4,000 tons of wood and a few more freight trains, each 1.6 kilometers long, just for one day. Of course, if you've got food and fire, well, you need water, right? Because you have to hydrate yourself and then, you know, you're going to clean some things that you have access to. Like you have to clean a few dishes. Um, and so he calculates if they only had enough water to drink, cook and wash a few dishes, it would have taken 41 and a half million liters of water every single day. And to think like they were in transit for 40 years. It's like, you've got a host of people, and let, let's say he's he's off on on his calculations. Let's not let's say it's not two million people. Let's say it's just five hundred thousand people. Like, can you imagine what it's like to feed that many people that, and you're bringing them through the wilderness basically for forty years? And I kind of wondered to myself, did Moses have everything figured out before he left for Egypt to free the people of Israel out of Egypt? And God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? When I think about the rod that was in Moses' hand, it's that rod that brought the plague. Well, of course, it was God that brought the plagues of Egypt. But you often see that story of Moses taking that rod and striking it on the ground and it bringing about the plagues. And God asks him, Moses, what's in your hand? What do you have? It's that with that rod that the plagues come down. It's with that rod that Moses parts the Red Sea. It's with that rod when Moses comes across the rock and he strikes the rock, water comes forth uh, from that rock. It's with that rod that God would teach Israel about the leadership and who he's called to be uh, the official high priest. And we know the story where Aaron's rod is picked and then uh, it's laid in a, it's laid uh, in front of the Ark of a Covenant overnight and then they come back and it's sprout, it sprouts uh, almond blossoms and basically God is saying, this is the leadership that I've chosen. And so all these things where Moses is wondering, God, how am I going to take care of Israel? How do I show them who the leader is? How do I point them to the promised land. God asks Moses, what do you possess? Moses, sir, what you have? And so he asks him, what do you have? And Moses looks in his hand and he says, well, I've got a rod. And this afternoon, I want to ask you, Melbourne City Adventist Church, what's in your hand? What has God given to you in your possession? What can you stir for God? What has God called us to do in our particular church? And what can we do in the city? And I don't know about you, but sometimes I find the uh, the task quite daunting. I don't know if you've ever walked down Swanson Street, um, up and down the street. How many of you have walked inside St. Paul's, Paul's Cathedral? Anybody? It's quite an amazing place. And and I think of actually the quite amazing work that the Anglican Church has done here in the city. But St. Paul's Cathedral, massive church Sunday morning. That place probably has around, from what I understand, about 400 people going there each morning. And then you go to the top of Swanson Street, and uh, there's a place called City on a Hill, and they meet inside of Hoyt Cinemas. Um, if you've ever walked through Melbourne Central and you see the big Hoyt uh, Cinemas, uh, City on a Hill has uh, basically several services that run out of the cinema, and I think they're probably um, going through around 500 people each each Sunday. And I think this this city, the CBD alone, has about 25,000 people, and I think the most... Um, at least visible presence that I've seen so far is probably Swanson Street and the few churches that are along there. But outside of that, there's this massive work to do where 50% of the people who live in the CBD claim we don't believe in God. 
And I kind of think to myself, this is such a massive, massive calling. God comes to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to do an impossible task. What's in your hand? Here's a second uh, instance where God calls an individual to a great calling. It's the story of Abraham. If you look through the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 16, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 15. The story starts in verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, whenever the Bible says the word of the Lord comes, you know that something specific or something special is going to happen because instruction is going to come and then there's something significant is going to come after that instruction. So if you open up to the first page of the book of the Bible and it says, and God said, let there be light, light happens because there's power that attends the word of God. So here's this story where the word of God comes to Abram and he gives him this promise. He says, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abram comes to God and he says, God, I'm childless. I don't have any children. And Abram is referencing a promise that has been previously given to him. If you look in Genesis chapter 12 and you look at verses 1 to 4, the story goes that God comes to Abram and he says, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And he basically says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You're going to have children and uh, those children are going to have children and you're going to become this very significant nation and uh, royalty is going to come from your bloodline. And if you look at verse four, it gives a specific age to Abram when he receives this um, promise. And it says here that he was 75 years old when he received this promise. And so if you go to chapter 15, Abram is now referencing this uh, promise, and he says, God, you called me out to do something very significant, and now I'm coming to you and saying, listen, I don't have any children. And um, him and his him and his wife Sarah had tried to have children. It couldn't happen. And um, here, Abram is saying, what are you going to do about this? And so the word of the Lord basically says here in verse 4, um, or excuse me, if you look at verse uh, uh, 5, it says that God brings Abram out um, to this open field. It's at night, and he says, look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he says, so shall your descendants be. And so God says, Abram, and I'm curious, have any of you ever tried to count the number of stars that are in the sky or just like a portion of them? I, I, I once had a physics teacher, and he basically said, uh, make a rectangle with your hand and point it towards heaven and count the number of stars that are in that little square. And I think my friends and I went out there and we counted 98 um, just in one just in one square. And God comes to Abraham and he says, listen, just count and this is what your descendants are going to be like. And I'm trying to imagine what's it like being Abraham. He has his wife, they've tried to have children and they're just, they're not able to have any. We move on in chapter 16. It says, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had bore him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And so she basically tells Abram, marry my maidservant and have a child through her. Maybe this is what God's plan is. Now, if you think about that, that makes sense. I mean, here is Abram. Um, he's not able to have kids. God promised him kids. And so it makes sense. Well, if his wife is barren, then 
perhaps somebody else can be fertile. So just marry another person and maybe that'll, maybe that'll do the trick. So we know from this story that Abraham marries Hagar and he has a child named Ishmael. Now I ask people all the time, do you think this is an act of faith? Do you think this is fulfilling God's promise to Abraham? Or do you think that, um, it's an act of um, unfaithfulness to God's promise. And I'm curious as to what you think. It's a rhetorical question, but um, basically I can understand where Abram's coming from because of the circumstances. But the story goes on. If you look, if you fast forward a few chapters to Genesis chapter 21, it says in verse 1 that God visits Sarah. And God says to Sarah, you are going to have a child in your old age. And if you look at verse 5, it says, Abraham was a 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him through Sarah. And so picture this. How old was Abraham when God first gave him the promise? He's 75 years old. How old was he when he actually had the first child through his wife Sarah? He's a 100 years old. Has anybody ever promised you anything that took 25 years to fulfill? I'm curious. Now for me, if that promise takes more than one week to fulfill, I get a little bit anxious. I think, hey, you said you were going to do this. How come this isn't happening so far? And to think, Abram has to wait for 25 years before the very first child from his actual, uh, from him and Sarah's relationship actually comes out. What that would feel like, I have no idea. Like, it's, it's quite incredible. And yet, God is faithful to his promise. Like, the, there are um, incredible circumstances that guide this story. So, Abraham, uh, God is faithful to Abraham by his first child, and then we know from um, his son Isaac, and then the next few descendants, they actually, their family grows quite significantly. Um, I want to bring out these two stories and simply showing that there are incredible circumstances where God promises something and he actually fulfills his promise. So he calls us to do things that are out of the ordinary, that seem impossible, and yet God is faithful to his word. Here's a third example, and we'll go to um, the end of the book of Matthew where God gives this command or this promise to his people. If you look at Matthew chapter... 28, and reading verses 19 and 20. This is called the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, and reading verses 19 and 20. It says, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples now. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so God comes to these 12 disciples and he says, listen, I want you to go make more disciples. And um, a definition of the word disciple is go find more people that are willing to follow after me, um, follow after Christ. And he's saying, go forward in my name, in the name of God, and um, teach people what the things that I have taught you, and uh, teach them to believe in me as God. Now think about this. Israel at that time is probably one of the smallest, weakest nations in, in that general area, let alone globally, let alone the world. And you have this weak nation that 
is ruled over by the Roman Empire, and they're supposed to go over to polytheistic pagans, to people of other religions, and convince them there is a God in heaven who sent his son to die for the sins of humanity. He died, he rose again, and he went up to heaven. And the question is, how do you go forward with a message like that to people who don't believe what you believe, and how do you convince them of truth? How do you convince them of truth? In the book of Acts, it talks about how God initially works through the, the Israelite nation because for thousands of years there had been prophecies, the scriptures had been passed down from generation to generation, whether it was um, by the word of mouth or whether it was uh, through uh, through scripture. And these people were raised with the idea there is a God in heaven. There, uh, um Humanity is fallen but, uh, with the nature of sin, and God is going to send somebody, a Messiah, to come and free us from sin. And this message had been passed on from generation to generation to generation. So when Jesus comes onto the scene at the time where Israel is under Roman Empire, uh, Roman rule, people are looking for a Messiah because they had been raised with this. And so whether it was prophecy, whether it was upbringing, um, the people were ready for a Messiah. And so in the book of Acts, what we see is the disciples going forward saying Jesus was that Messiah. Thousands of people come to believe in Jesus. And now in the book of Acts, there's this transition from where um, the Jewish people now go to the non-Jewish people and share uh, what the gospel is all about. Now, there are a few transitions that I want to talk about that were significant to this actually taking place. The first significance is... Um, the Jewish nation revolved around temple worship. The Jewish nation revolved around temple worship. Whether it was politics, whether it was power, it revolved around religion. And if you look at Matthew chapter 27, there's a significant event that takes place once Jesus dies. And if you look at Matthew chapter 27, and you look at verse 51, it says... When Jesus died, he cries up, he yields his spirit, his life ends. And in verse 51, it says, The veil of the temple tore from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Now, what takes place at this event is in the temple, which the whole uh, nation's religion revolved around, it was basically this temple. And there was this veil that split Two rooms. One was called the most holy place. One is called the holy place. And as that veil ripped, it was kind of a message saying, this building, this place where religion revolves around, um, in which uh, the religion revolves around, this type of religion is now coming to an end because Jesus has died. And now there's this shift in people's mindsets from going to the temple and worshiping God to focusing on Jesus who has died for their sins. And so as this veil rips from top to bottom, um, basically, the implication is this is a supernatural occurrence because usually when somebody rips something, especially if it's a veil, it would be from bottom to top, right? Because someone would grab it and then rip it. But if it rips from top to bottom, that isn't a normal, that's not a normal occurrence. Now, here's what happens. So the veil rips, um, the rocks uh, are broken apart. It says the graves are open and a supernatural occurrence takes place. There is, uh, there are, uh, people who have been dead, who are resurrected. And if you look at verse 54, it says, So when the centurion, and a centurion is a Roman soldier, 
he's he's basically um, someone who works for the military. He's not a Christian, doesn't have a Jewish background. This person is a Roman citizen. And in verse 54, it says, When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And so you see um, the very fabric that kind of keeps the Jewish nation together kind of come apart, and there's going to be a transition from temple to Jesus. And this pagan, who doesn't know anything about God, witnesses this and says, man, this man who is dying on the cross, he is the son of God. And there's this transition from Jew to Gentile. Like, the message is now going to get out. And so, this takes place, and um, basically now the disciples have this role to go spread the gospel. So, the first transition that takes place is God moves from temple worship and then he now focuses on the Christian church. And it's kind of interesting because there's this national separation, there's this racial separation between Jew and Gentile. And the temple kind of was conducive to that racial separation because they had different compartments where people could worship. For example, uh, the men and women could not worship together. The Jews and the Gentiles could not worship together because this building had specific rooms designated for specific things. And so as that veil rips, it's like I'm doing away with the separation and God is communicating. Now I want the church to worship together. And if you look throughout history and throughout the book of Acts, you see the church meeting together in small homes together as opposed to worship places together. And so you almost see this decentralization of um, of temple worship and you see people worshiping in homes. And you see God trying to cultivate community as opposed to separation. And so that's one thing that takes place. A second thing that takes place is that the temple worship consisted of people coming to a building, uh, sacrificing a lamb uh, during the, fest- the time of the festivals, and then that was kind of like something that was exclusive only for the Jews. And what takes place is at the end of Jesus' life, he basically says, uh, this is one way that I want you to remember me. And he doesn't talk about the feast days, but instead he instills something called communion, where he calls people to come together, to take part, to break bread, to drink wine and to have communion with one another in people's homes. And you see that happening. So if you turn to the end of Acts chapter 2, the end of Acts chapter 2, you see that happening quite regularly. Now, what I want to highlight here is as communion takes place, as the Gentiles were coming into the homes of the Jews, as they were worshiping together, as they were getting to know one another in their daily lives and sharing the gospel message, for me, I always look for this million-dollar answer. How how did the Jews do this? How did the disciples do this? If you go to somebody who doesn't believe and you simply say, hey, um, Jesus has died and rose again, is that going to convince people? And here's basically what the Bible says, and I want to end here. If we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about, Paul talks about, um, his experience with Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says this. He introduces the first four verses by explaining the gospel. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you have received, in which, uh, 
excuse me, which also you received and which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast to what I preach to you. And so Paul breaks down the message of the gospel, and he basically says the gospel is the fact that Jesus died and rose again for your sins. And then he goes on, and I just want to highlight um, verse 5. It says, And he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen over five... Uh, seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain in the present, but some have fallen asleep. And he's saying some have died. Verse 7, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And so he basically goes and says, Jesus died, he rose again, and he showed himself to, um, he showed himself to, uh, the different disciples. And in verse 8 he says, then last of all he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. And he was basically saying, um, I didn't get to see Jesus while Jesus was alive there, but God revealed himself to me in a supernatural way saying, I died, I rose again, I'm resurrected. Now I want you to go and share that same message. And here's what he says, continuing on. By the grace of God, verse 10. I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. And here's Paul basically saying, I went, I shared the gospel message, and now you believe. And for me, it's like, is it really that simple that you go to people and you say, this is what I believe, and they listen to you, and they say, oh, you've got a point there. And I kind of wonder, how do you balance How do you balance going and preaching to people what you believe and actually causing them to believe what you've t- shared with them? Now, this is what Paul says, but when you actually read through the book of Acts, what you realize is that there are slight nuances in the story that make you realize that there are certain other things that were really appealing to people. For example... In the time of the Greco-Roman Empire, whether it was uh, the Persians, the Egyptians, or whether it was uh, the Greeks, in that society, there's massive amounts of inequality between men and women. Massive amounts of equality. And actually, it's only with the Romans where um, law required women to actually have mutual consent if divorce was to be taken. In every other culture, if the man comes to the woman and says, I want to divorce you, they can, and the woman has no choice in the matter. And what happens is when you read through the story of Acts, you see men and women worshiping together. And in Roman in Roman culture, um, it was often the women that would take care of the management of the home, whether it was the finances or whether it was property or whether whatever it may be. Um, oftentimes you see women um, having significant roles in society. And as you read through the book of Acts and as you read through Paul's writings, you see Paul naming female names of women, people who are involved in the church. And in any other culture throughout that time, it isn't normal for um, there to be that equality because there's just man and then there's women. And when you read through Paul's writings, especially in Galatians, when he says, there's no more Greek, there's no more Jew, there's no more slave, there's no more freeman, there's no more male, there's no more female, and he says, there's Christ lifted up, basically. And what he's saying is, when you understand the gospel, you understand the equality of man. And so, as people hear the message of the gospel, as people would see the Christians interacting with each other, they would notice a difference between those that were non-Christian and those that were Christian, they realized, hey, you treat people differently. What's so different about you Christians? Not only that, 
they would have noticed in the book of Acts in several different, uh, several different occasions, you see the people selling their property and taking care of one another's needs. And that happens at least three times throughout the book of Acts. And we've mentioned that before in the, in the previous sermons. But what you see is people all around them in a society that kind of, uh, encouraged consumerism where people are, uh, gaining goods, resources, property, power. You see this group of Christians that are selling everything that they have and relieving uh, the needs of those that have great need in the church. And the Bible says that they had all things in common. And so what takes place is you have these small home, you have these small churches and homes and you've got this community of unbelievers and they're seeing like people actually caring for other people and they're realizing, hold on, this is completely different from what I've seen. And so not only do the Christians preach this message of the gospel, but they are living out this completely different way of uh, morality, a complete different way of life, and they're actually seeing Christian love and Christian community take place. And this leads to this massive growth uh, from the first three centuries. And what happens is the church goes from about 120 people, and then it explodes. And basically, um, people that look at different statistics range from basically it's like, uh, I think it's like 1.5 million like believers outside of Judea. And that's quite significant if you look at um, just basically three centuries of growth. What was it that caused this message to go forward? And the Christians basically decide we're going to take the message of the gospel, we're going to live it, and we're going to share it. And um, I believe that if we can take some of those principles into our own lives, we have small groups in our church um, that we meet on, whether it's uh, every other Friday or whether it's each Friday or whether it's in the city on a Tuesday. Um, What we're trying to do is have small communities where we are sharing the gospel with one another, where we are living the gospel with one another, and where we are relieving um, the needs of those around us. And so it's my prayer that as we continue to move forward as a church, as we stir what we've got, may we see God work in a powerful way. May God bless you.